If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of James, chapter 1. As I've said the past few weeks, if it's if you're not sure where James is, it's probably best to start at the back and hit Revelation and start turning left. If you get to Hebrews, you've gone too far to the left, so just come back a book. But the book of James... Uh, And chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 5 through 12. Someone asked me if I was going to preach a Mother's Day sermon, and I said, no, I'm going to be in James talking about trials. Uh, Which I guess maybe sometimes is what motherhood is, uh, the the difficulties. But last Sunday we looked at uh, James 1, 2 through 4, and we saw the the first command that that, that James gives in this book, which is to consider it pure joy, count it pure joy, when you face lots of different kinds of trials. And we said this, we said that we are to rejoice when trials come because of the results that they bring. So trials and testing, they produce patience in us. Patience grows in our lives, and then we grow into maturity to the point that we are complete and we are Christ-like, knowing, of course, that that will only happen on the last day when, when Christ returns. So because of what the trials produce in us, we can rejoice when they show up. Of course, that's not always easy, right? It's not our natural reaction to rejoice when trials and, and testing come. But if we are in Christ, it's slowly becoming who we are because we have, we have new desires. We have new goals. And our, our great goal in life is not just to be comfortable and to be pain-free, but our great goal in life is to be like Jesus. And so when trials come, We can look at them and say, this is going to accomplish something in me. It's going to produce something in me to make me more like Jesus. And because that's what we really want, we can rejoice when trials come. Still, uh, what about when testing comes and and you just don't understand why it's there? You don't understand the reason. You can't see that. What about when the trial is just, it just feels like it's too big? Uh, maybe it's a test that comes, but it's coming right on the heels of seven other tests that you just walked through and you're just tired and you can't rejoice in the midst of it. And you're fighting to see the reality of what God is doing. What about when you have endured, this This is producing endurance in you, but you just feel like your endurance has run out. You're at the marathon and you're at mile 22 and it's, I'm ready to quit. Um, what do we do when the thought of rejoicing at the tests and the trials in our lives is actually kind of the last thing on our mind. Well, encouragingly, James is not done talking about trials. He doesn't just give us those three verses and then stop. In fact, he gives us more to say here in James 5, and James 1, 5 through 12. And this, there's another key here to rejoicing in the midst of trials and testing. This is what James is going to teach us today. God's generous gifts... God is generous, and God's going to give us gifts. God's generous gifts help us to discover joy in the midst of trials. So God's going to give us some gifts. God is generous. So God's generous gifts help us to discover or maybe to see joy in the midst of testing. One more time, God's generous gifts help us discover joy in the midst of testing. So God may give us trials, but that's not all that he is going to give us, right? He also is going to equip us to walk through these tests of faith. And he's going to do that by giving us two gifts that we're going to talk about this morning. And they are what we'll call present wisdom, wisdom in the present, present wisdom, and future hope. 
present wisdom and future hope. And these generous gifts help us to have joy in the midst of trials. These kind of act like a like a pair of glasses with, with bifocals. Does anyone have bifocals? I don't know if anyone does. Some people do. So bifocals would be if you are both nearsighted and if you, if you can't see close well and you can't see far well. So they have this little part here where you can look down when you're reading and look through one lens. And then when you're looking at distances, you look through a different lens and you can see far away. And so the present wisdom is like the bifocals, okay? So when we're in the midst of a trial, it helps us to clearly see what God is, is doing, to have his perspective. And then the, the lens itself that helps us to see far away, th- this is that future hope, to see what, what really matters, to look into the future and to understand why these trials are there and why we can actually rejoice. So maybe keep that picture in your mind that what we're trying to do, what James is going to do is take a pair of glasses in the midst of trials and put it on us so that we can have present wisdom but also future hope. I don't think this is anything brand new. We've all talked about this and scripture talks about it all over the place. But boy, I need to be reminded of that. I need to be reminded of the wisdom I need now. I need to be reminded of the future hope that I have. And that's what I want to do this morning is just remind us to put these glasses on in the midst of trials. Because tomorrow morning, or even this afternoon, uh, there's going to be things that test us, that are going to push us, and that are going to prod us. And we need to have these glasses on if we're going to see these trials as an opportunity to rejoice. So, let's read James 1. And I want to start in verse 2, which we we discussed last week, but that's going to lead right into these these other verses. So James 1, beginning in verse 2. James writes to us, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Again, we're thinking about this idea God's generous gifts help us to discover joy in the midst of testing. And the gifts that we see are present wisdom and future hope. So we're going to think about present wisdom here in verses 5 through 8 to start with. What's interesting here is James can feel a little disconnected sometimes. Like he's jumping from one topic to the next. And the reason we can connect these two paragraphs together is because of this word lack. You see that at the end of verse 4, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then in verse 5, he brings that word in. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. So that sort of ties these two uh, pieces together. 
I don't think what James is saying here is that some of you have wisdom and some of you lack wisdom, but rather what he's saying is if any of you lacks wisdom, which is all of you, <laughs> then he should ask God for wisdom. Uh, so for God to, to give us this, this wisdom in the present, in the midst of the testing, the first thing that we have to do is admit that we lack wisdom. So for present wisdom, if you want present wisdom, the first thing to do is admit that you lack wisdom. Uh, if you are going to get glasses, it will begin with admitting that your vision is, is not perfect. And if you're going to get present wisdom, it's going to be admitting that you lack wisdom. In many ways, we we lack wisdom, um, and admitting that I, here's what I think: admitting that we lack wisdom in many ways is just saying that life is hard, and is recognizing that we don't have it all together. Um, it's admitting that we prefer ease. It's admitting that we would often rather live a life that's free from trials rather than we would want to grow in godliness. To admit that we, we lack wisdom is to say that sometimes we're just, we, we know the best way to respond to difficulties in life is to rejoice. But sometimes we just don't see how we can do that. And we need the wisdom to do it. We know what we're supposed to do, but we don't really want to do it. Um, wisdom is different than knowledge. We can know the truths of verses 2 through 4. But we could we could also... Um, know that the testing of our faith will make us mature and still not see steadfastness and completeness mark our lives because knowledge is different than wisdom. Wisdom is the application of the knowledge that we have. It's walking into trials and continuing to, to trust God. Wisdom is applied knowledge. It's skill in, in living. And that's something that God has to give us. So we have to admit that we don't have that. We have to admit that we don't naturally want to rejoice in trials that we that we want to tough it out on our own or we just want to get through it without learning anything then once we humble ourselves and admit that we lack wisdom then we can ask in faith for wisdom so how do we get present wisdom the first is to admit that we lack wisdom and then ask god in faith for wisdom so if we come to grips with the fact that we don't have wisdom then we come to god as the source of wisdom. There are lots of different places you can go to look for wisdom. Lots of things you could scroll through and and get wisdom of some kind. I was listening to the radio this week. I was driving late at night, and so I start scanning channels because it somehow keeps me awake, and I landed on a, a country station, you know. And country music has lots of good wisdom, right? <laughs> at least life advice. So here's, here's, here's the mantra that I was given. God is great, beer is good, and people are crazy. That was, that was, that's the life advice. There's your, your principles for life. Of course, we get philosophies everywhere. There's the whole, uh, you only live once, right? That's, that's a philosophy of life. Karma, we talked about that in, in Sunday school, is a philosophy of life that if I do enough good, then, then good will come to me. If I do bad, then bad's going to, to come to me. And so we go to all the kinds of, you can go to the radio, you can go to country music if you really want to, you can go to Facebook news feed, you can um, look lots of different places, the self-help section maybe at a, at a bookstore, but we're told to come to God for wisdom. 
to expect that God who made the world is actually the one that understands how it works best and how we should respond. And he gives us wisdom. That's the beautiful thing is God will give us wisdom. He gives it to us in his word and he gives it to us by his spirit through the gift of prayer. So we ask for wisdom. And as we ask for wisdom, faith is key. Trust in God is the key. I think James was telling us to trust, to believe, to have faith in, in a couple different things about who God is as we ask for wisdom from him. So we're asking God in faith for wisdom. And as we do that, we have faith in God's boundless generosity. We have faith in God's boundless, his limitless generosity to us. So when we come to God, we ask for wisdom. We are coming believing something. We're believing that he generously gives to all without reproach, without finding fault. You see that there. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Literally, that means let him ask the giving God, the, the God who, who, who gives to us. God is defined by giving generously. Later, James will say that every good and every perfect gift that we have comes from God. Isn't that a wonderful thing to know about God? That God is a generous, giving God? Scripture testifies to God's generosity, doesn't it? Right from the very beginning, Adam and Eve are placed in the Garden of Eden, and they're given one no, and generously given everything else in the Garden that they are allowed to eat from. Everything is for them. God generously lavishes wonderful things on them. And even when they rebel against the one command, God generously clothes their shame. When you think about the children of Israel, he gives them manna in the desert every single day. And then he gives them the land of Canaan. You can even think about the Old Testament example of someone asking for wisdom. Solomon asks for wisdom, and what does God do? He gives him wisdom, and he gives him everything else that he didn't ask for, because that's who God is. God generously gives. So we're told to pray, knowing that our Heavenly Father knows how to give good gifts to his children. Like we read earlier, if we ask according to his will, he will give it to us. He's not going to give us the opposite of what we ask for. Sometimes we're a little unsure about whether our prayer will be, be answered, what we're asking for. But you know what we see here? James tells us that if we ask for wisdom, God will give it. He always gives us wisdom to see what he's doing. So we can ask boldly and humbly for wisdom. We're told that he, when he gives, he doesn't upbraid. He doesn't demean us. He doesn't find fault. God doesn't make us feel guilty for asking for wisdom. God doesn't make us feel dumb for not understanding what's going on. Sometimes maybe in school you had that where you, you didn't want to raise your hand. You didn't want to ask a question because you didn't want to be embarrassed that you didn't know what was going on, that you got a little lost in the lecture and, you were afraid you were going to ask a question that had already been answered or something like that. And sometimes maybe you did, and the teacher said, we answered that five minutes ago, I'm not talking to you. <laughs> we do that with our own children sometimes. You asked me for that five minutes ago. This is the last time. Didn't I just give you that? God never does that with wisdom. He will always give it. The Phillips version translates it, that he does not make us feel guilty or foolish when we ask for wisdom. I love that. God desires for us to humbly ask him for wisdom, and it's, it's in his hands. He is ready always to give us 
wisdom when we don't understand what's going on in our lives. And we can trust this boundless generosity. We can trust it because of what we've seen in the past. We can trust it because of, of what this verse says. And most importantly, we trust it because God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have an everlasting life. We know that if he has given us his son in the midst of our sin and rebellion, he gives us Jesus to bring us eternal life and forgiveness. If he's done that, then he will give us everything else. Romans 8.32, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So we come to God, and we ask him for wisdom. We ask for this wisdom to see his plan and to, to trust his plan in the midst of trials. And we can do that with faith in his boundless generosity. He will give wisdom to us when we ask it. And as we're asking, we also have faith, not just in his boundless generosity, but faith in God's sovereign love. God's sovereign love, his, his control of things, but even as he's controlling them, that he, that he loves us. I think we see that coming out in this idea where he talks about asking in faith without any doubting. He says that that's how we are supposed to ask. And if we doubt, we're like a wave of the sea. You think about a wave, it's controlled just by all the different forces. It's controlled by the wind. It's controlled by gravity. You can think about the tides that are controlled by by the moon. And so there's all these currents and everything is flowing. And it just, these waves are tossed back and forth. We feel that way sometimes. We feel like we are caught in the current of the sea of life, and of our own desires, and we're tossed here and there and everywhere, and we don't even know what we really want. We're at the mercy of life's circumstances. Sometimes in life we're trying to go every which way at once. James talks about if we ask without faith, we asking with doubts, we're like this wave, but we're also like a double-minded man. Uh, a man of, of divided loyalties. John Bunyan calls this guy Mr. Facing Both Ways. <laughs> I like that. Also, not as uh, astute as Bunyan, but I also like Dr. Seuss. Um, <laughs> he talked about a zode in the road who wasn't sure if he should go to place one or place two. And he ends that by the, the zode takes off to both places at once. And it says at the end, and that's how the zode who would not take a chance, went no place at all with a split in his pants. <laughs> that's Mr. Facing Both Ways. That's, that's divided loyalties. We're trying to go two places at once. It just, it just doesn't work. On the contrary, when we ask in faith, we're not just trusting God's generosity, but we're also trusting His, his sovereign love. We are, we're facing down the narrow way that He's called us to, the, the path that leads through suffering but leads to, to glory and that leads to growth. And we know that he is working all things for good. And we're asking how, because we're, we're unsure. We ask in faith. We say we want to continue down this path. And we're trusting him. But we're asking not just to be delivered from the trial, but we're asking to see how God is in control of this. That that's what our great desire is. Maybe this is helpful, because it's kind of hard even for me to wrap my mind around. But a commentator, Motyer, says this. Faith is our absolute confidence that he will give what we ask. Doubting is our own inner uncertainty about whether we really want him to give it or not. So do I want wisdom to see this circumstance as being used for good, 
or do I just want to be out of the situation? Do I want wisdom to deal with the poverty in my life, or do I just want wealth? <laughs> do I want to grow in patience, or do I just want my children to be perfectly obedient? Um, do I want to learn humility and endurance, or do I just want my parents to leave me alone, or my boss to leave me alone, or other authority to leave me alone? Do I want, in, in faith, do I want to rejoice in trials when I am doubting, or do I, I just want to be tossed around and not really deal with it? I, there's lots of opportunities for ask, to ask for that kind of wisdom this week. Before the trials come, in the midst of them, uh, we ask and we are affirming that we really, truly desire to walk in God's ways. We really want to under, we trust His sovereign love. We trust that He is leading us and we just need some help to see it. I think God is asking us for perfect faith or for perfect wisdom. I think we're often like the man before Jesus who says, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. I, I get it. I know you're doing something. I just don't know why. So can you help me a little bit to understand, to see? Give me wisdom to see your sovereign love. Give me wisdom to trust your love when I, I don't understand the purpose for what I'm going through. I think that's the wisdom that, that we're, we're going for here. It's the wisdom to, to not be tossed back and forth. It's, it's the wisdom to, to desire what God really wants. I grew up going to the beach every summer, and I've, I've been smashed by waves <laughs> many times, multiple waves over and over again. But I've also ridden on top of them, and I've taken them all the way to the shore. I've been buried in the sand, but I've also ridden them all the way in. And I think that's sort of what James is talking about here is we can be tossed back and forth, but if we have wisdom, we know how to use this wave and to see how God is actually not using it to crush us and to drown us, but is actually taking us somewhere. He's leading us to the shore. He's leading us to a place that he wants us to get to. And that's going to take wisdom, and it's a wisdom that we don't have. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a present wisdom that will come when we admit that we don't have it on our own, and when we ask in faith, we come to God as the source of all wisdom, and we, we trust him. We trust that he will give it generously to us, and we trust and believe that he, is, he has sovereign love for us, that he actually really wants to use this for our good, and we believe that, and that's what we truly desire. So, along with the present wisdom, as God generously gives us things to help us rejoice in trials, he also gives us this future hope. That's the second thing. So, present wisdom are the bifocals that help us look at the current situation, and the future hope is the thing that helps us to look into the distance and see what really matters. And by faith, God gives us this proper understanding of what true significance is. So as we're looking into the future, in, in verses 9 through 11 and then in verse 12, just two things. The first thing that we see is the, the fading wealth and status of the world. So we look into the future, and what do we see? We see that the fading uh, the fading wealth and status of the world, that the things that the world values are actually all falling apart. They're all fading. They will all be destroyed. So look at that again in verses 9 through 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So just like the call to rejoice in trials is strange 
because it, it goes against our natural inclination. This call for the lowly man, the poor man, to rejoice in his exaltation and for the rich man to rejoice in his humiliation, that's, that's strange. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us. It's strange because the rich and the wealthy people are the ones that are exalted, right? They're the ones that are on the magazine covers. They're the ones that, that, that have things going well for them. Um, they're the poor and the and the the lowly, those are the ones that are passed by. Those are the ones that are avoided, that we want nothing to do with. So how is the lowly brother exalted? Because if we look at the, the present and we look at what the world values, they are they are not valued. But if they have come, if, if, if a lowly, poor person, whether it's you or me or anyone else, has come to God by faith in Jesus, then they actually have a very exalted status, right? Maybe not on this earth, according to this world's terms, but aren't they exalted? And that's what James wants the lowly brother to look at. Look at your exalted state. Not now. Look at your exalted state in heaven. No matter how poor we are in Christ, we are exalted. Who are we? We're part of a royal family. (laughs) Our Father is the King of the universe. And our elder brother is Jesus Christ, and we are joint heirs with Him. That's, That's a pretty exalted status when you think about it we are members of of god's very own people this is what peter tells us we are we're a chosen race we're a royal priesthood a holy nation we are a people for god's own possession paul tells us that we are seated with christ in the heavenlies even now that's an exalted position and none of that has anything to do with our current wealth or poverty so james wants the poor and the lowly that he's writing to not to focus on their the present situation, the visible things that they see, the things that are that are weighing them down, but he wants them to look to the future and it actually somewhat the way it's breaking into the present and to see that all these present difficulties and all the present riches are are nothing compared to what is to come, that that is what we are really looking for. It'd be easy for someone in deep poverty to focus just on the present. But James tells them to remember their future glory. Remember what is coming. You know, poverty, I think James picks up on poverty and wealth because it affects so much. When someone is poor, that brings a lot of trials, doesn't it? It brings it brings physical trials. It brings, um, you know, their health is, is not as great because they don't have access to good health care or they don't have access to good food or they don't have access to friends and family because they've bled them dry and they don't have strong relationships. And poverty causes so many issues within life. And, and James is saying, if you just focus on this, you are going to drown in what poverty has done. But if you looked at your exalted position in the future, you can rejoice. And what are the rich to rejoice in? The rich are to rejoice in and recognize their humiliation. Specifically, what are they to remember? They're to remember that they are going to fade and pass away along with all of their wealth. James compares the rich to a flower of the field that sprouts up and then the sun comes and and an east wind comes and it's just destroyed. It fades away. Time catches up to everyone. Time tarnishes all of our wealth. Time takes away even our lives. Of course, that's true for the poor too, isn't it? The poor aren't, will, will face death as well. They too will fade and pass away. But the, but the poor are more likely to recognize that. 
The poor need to look to the future and remember that all the trials that they face now are nothing compared to what the future holds. The poor know that they will fade one day because they feel like they're going to fade every day. And so they long for the eternal rest. I grew up listening to, to bluegrass music. And bluegrass music is sort of salt of the earth kind of music. And you know what they talk about all the time? Heaven. Because life is hard. You look at the old spirituals that, that those that were in slavery saying, you know what they talked about all the time? Rest in heaven. Why? Because life was hard. And so the, the poor don't need to be reminded that they're going to fade away because they're reminded of that every single day. The rich do. And in fact, we probably do because we, we get this idea that we are somehow invincible. We get so comfortable, we believe in the words of the 80s power ballad that heaven is a place on earth, right? Which is not true. In the midst of their pursuits, they will suddenly be cut off and they will find that they have failed to invest in things that really lasted for eternity. The hard thing is that if I gave you the option this morning, would you like to be rich or would you like to be poor? What would you pick? I think we'd all, if we're honest, we would say, well, I'd like to have some money. And I wouldn't be like everyone else that has money. You know, I'd have right perspective. They have money, status, and ease. But wealth can draw us away from the Lord. It can keep our faith from building muscle. It doesn't have to. But it is hard. If we have money, we don't need to trust God as our provider. We don't need to face hardship because we can find some way to buy our way out of it, probably. And all of that ease makes us feel invincible. But but the rich are going to fade away, just like everyone else. They'll be like that man. Remember the man Jesus talked about that? He had so much wealth that he said, well, I better build some new barns to hold all my stuff. And then Jesus said, you fool, tonight your life will be required of you. He didn't realize it. The lowly brother doesn't forget that. But the rich often do. We often do. Boy, it's hard not to get sucked into the desire for earthly treasure. You know, we're in the midst of looking for a house. Boy, it's hard not to want more than I need. <laughs> it's, it's hard not to say I need more possessions and forget that, that those things really won't matter in the end. I was thinking about that as I was driving through a beautiful neighborhood with all these perfectly manicured lawns, and I thought, boy, it would be nice to have that. And I was, I was listening to, uh, to Jill Phillips, and it was a new CD where she sings all these old spirituals, and she sang the song, I'd Rather Have Jesus. Do you guys know that one? That's an old one. I, we didn't sing it this morning because I didn't know if enough people would know it. But uh, the song says, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hands. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. It's good to remember that. And James is trying to fix our gaze on, on that future hope. And we can rejoice because we see that the treasures of this world, they are just all fading away. And we know that God, if we're in the midst of trials, He's building something deep in us that will last for all eternity. So James fixes our eyes on this, this future hope by showing us the the fading uh, wealth and status of the world. And you know what else he shows us? He shows us the unfading crown of life. 
That's verse 12. The unfading crown of life. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Verse 12 ties back to verses 2 and 4 with these words about remaining steadfast. You remember that theme, right? And the, the trials and the testing. It forms kind of a bookend, but it also forms a bridge into the next section. People don't really know what to do with this verse. Is it is it the end of this section or is it the beginning of the next? I think it's probably kind of both. Um, and so we'll talk about it more next week. But it reminds me, when you hear that word, blessed is the man, what does that remind you of? It reminds me of the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? It reminds me of, of the Beatitudes of Jesus. And I actually just want to read all of those because they tie in so well with what James is trying to communicate here. Think about all these themes we've been talking about, about trials and difficulty and what really matters and all of that. And hear what Jesus says when he opens his mouth and he teaches on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. Sounds like James, doesn't it? Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Our reward in heaven is great. It's this crown of life. A crown, it, it signifies the status that we have in Christ. It signifies the joy for those who are children of the King. It's a, it's a sign of having been victorious over all the trials and all the difficulties of this life, of having persevered through many dangers, toils, and, and snares. This status, this joy, this victory, it's something that's breaking into our lives now. The kingdom is yet to come, but it is now. All these things we have now, and we taste now as followers of Christ, and one day we will have them fully in the future kingdom. It's a crown given to those who love him. I don't think that means that there are followers of Jesus who won't get the crown of life. <laughs> I think that all the followers of Jesus will receive the crown of life, and it's, it's this picture of, of salvation. And it's those who love Jesus. And what does it mean to love Jesus? What's it mean to follow Jesus, to be a, a Christian? It's, it's those who, who love Jesus more than comfort and ease and are willing to walk through trials. We, we love Jesus more than we love wealth. We love Him more than anything. It's, it's a love that comes to us because He first loved us. We don't, we don't earn the crown of life by loving Jesus. But those who have been given new life through faith in Christ are marked by this love for Him. So we love Him because He first loved us. And out of that love, we, see, we, we live our lives and, and, and we follow after Him. And then we receive this unfading crown of life. I'm encouraged that James just doesn't give me verses 2 through 4. But he lets us be weak, right? <laughs> he lets us be able to say, there are times 
often when you need wisdom. When you will not see this, you will not understand. And so he gives, God will give us present wisdom. We need to admit that we need it. And then we need to ask God for it. We need to go to him as the source of all wisdom and trust that he has, a, 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 he has boundless generosity. He will give us the wisdom that we need. We trust that. And we trust that he has sovereign love. That while it's really hard to understand why he's going to take us down this path, that it is the best path and that he will be doing something in us. So we have this, this present wisdom and then God graciously gives us a future hope. And we can look at all the trials and we can, we can, or we can look at, at the wealth of this world and see that it is just, it's fading. Whatever we would gain by, by shunning our trials actually will not last in the end. So it's okay to get rid of it. I don't need that. But then we see the unfading crown of life. And that's what we want. Because it signifies the status that we have in Christ, the joy that we have, the victory that we have, and the love that we have for Christ. And we can love Him in the midst of trials and in the midst of difficulties. So they're coming this week, today, next hour, something. It's going to be hard. There will be tests and trials. But I pray that we can rejoice because our minds are renewed by the wisdom of Scripture and because of the wisdom that God can give us in His Spirit. And that we would we'd sort of wear these glasses all through life and maybe physically put them on at times and say, I'm going to have present wisdom and pray that God would help me to see this. And I'm also going to remember that all these things in this world are fading and that the thing that I'm striving towards is the unfading crown of life that God will give to me because I love him.